Welcome to The 12th Story, a book discussion podcast produced by Cincinnati's Mercantile Library, where readers gather to engage, connect, debate, and discuss. The Mercantile Library is 180 years old and is the literary center of Cincinnati. Throughout the year, the Mercantile Library hosts authors and speakers, book discussion groups, and other civic events. We are a working library with more than 90,000 books available to members. We're located at 414 Walnut Street in downtown Cincinnati and online at mercantillibrary.com. And we always welcome new members and guests. Joining us today in the lecture hall on the 12th story of the Mercantile Building are Chris Wetterick from the Cincinnati Business Courier. Thanks for having me, Brendan. Kevin Necessary from WCPO. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. And I'm Brendan Call uh, from the Chamber of Commerce and on the board of the Mercantile Library. Uh, today we're going to discuss 67 Shots by Howard Means. Um, this is a book about Kent State and um, what happened in early May of 1970 in Kent State. Uh, and uh, Howard Means' book came out earlier this year, and um, so we're going we're gonna to talk about that. Uh, a warning, as we always do, even though uh, m- most of you listening um, will not need this requirement, but there will be spoilers to discuss today, so proceed at your own discretion if you'd rather wait to discuss this book until you've read it. Push pause now and come back in a few days once you've finished this book. So we're going to start out. Kevin and Chris are um, first-time podcast guests, so we're, we're glad you're here. And one of the reasons that we were excited to have you both is you both attended Kent State together. So we maybe we roommates. can start there. We were roommates <laughs> at Kent State. Yeah, we maybe were. we can start there and talk a little bit about what it was like to go to a school at Kent State that had this history. Yeah, well, Kevin and I have known each other since, uh, what was it, 7th seventh, seventh or 8th grade, one of the two? Yeah, I think 7th grade, because we were on the bus together in 7th grade. We first had a class together in 8th grade. I didn't like you much then. I didn't like you much. <laughs> I still don't like you much. <laughs> <laughs> but we were roommates, nevertheless, and uh, so we went to Kent State uh, between 1997 and 2001, 2002. Yeah, I was uh, a super senior, so 2002. Were, I didn't want to bring it up if it was a sore subject, no, so I wasn't sure. <laughs> Um, you know, and then that, the funny thing about this book is that the way it describes the university is a lot of the way that I remembered it 30 years after, you know, after the shootings happened. You know, it's very much a commuter campus. One of the frustrating things I remember about being in the dorms there was, you know, you had, we were, of course, from southwest Ohio, and, you know, Friday afternoon or sometimes Thursday, if you didn't have a Friday class, every, you know, all the students from northeast Ohio, from Cleveland and Akron, They'd, they'd pack up and, and leave and go home for the weekend and hang out with their high school friends. It was just kind of a kind of a bizarre situation, uh, you know, as a commuter campus. I guess I didn't really know that going in. And so at first that was kind of a, a weird thing to have happen. And so, you know, we tended to make friends with people who were, uh, you know, who were from other places like uh, like we were. Yeah. And, and also, I mean, you know, just the way that they describe the town in the book. I mean, it is, you know, it, it's a very, it has a very small town feel, um, you know, the, 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 the whole campus is very laid back. Uh, you know, I mean, there's just not a whole lot of stress there. Um, it's very idyllic, except in the winter when it just becomes a, uh, a frozen wasteland. See, I, didn't, I didn't find it that way. I, 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 I thought the campus look was horrible, and, it, you know, the gray cloudiness all the time depressed me, and, you know, <laughs> it, it ticked me off that we were so far from, you know, there's like kind of a neighborhood between the campus and downtown, and so... It just it was it just became kind of difficult to get around. It's uh, downtown Kent, right? Like that's right. the town. Well, right. yeah, yeah. It's a little you know it's it's a downtown with like four streets basically. Right. Um, and it feature and the downtown features very prominently in the beginning of the book yeah, because yeah. they uh, have a riot basically. They basically have a riot in their downtown, and I I actually 
didn't, I mean, one of the reasons I was interested in reading this is that Kent State looms large in Ohio history and it looms large in American history. Um, but outside of the fact that the National Guard came and, you know, four kids died tragically, I didn't know a lot about the sequence of what happened. And that's really what he recreates here in the book. Right. And, and from from kind of building the tension on the campus that had been um, happening all spring and, um, and I guess, you know, March, April uh, into early May mm-hmm. to this, fri- I guess it was a Friday night right. yeah. riot in downtown that had to do with bars, bars closing, essentially. And, right. and So, I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, as you saw in the book, there were bikers that had come in. Right. It was hot. Bars were closing early. Um, there were, the, I believe it was the NBA finals. And, you know, that was getting some students riled up. And it was because they wanted to watch it on TV, and they yeah. didn't have a TV or something. It was yeah. very strange. And you know, and it, it was now. just yeah. I mean, you know, the, you know the, the whole situation at that time. I mean, politically was already a powder keg, and I think it just needed some point to explode. And you know, and it, and it wasn't just students show up on campus, you know, on a Monday and decide to have, you know to hold a, a massive rally and right. go after the guard. It was all these little incremental things that happened. You know, the riot, the ROTC building, sitting in the guard, and you know, as as Chris was saying, you know, you know the the campus is a suitcase campus. So by the time people got back on Monday, they had no idea that all these things yeah. had happened. You know, the other thing that strikes me is really true true then, and it was true in two thousand, and I I can't imagine it would suddenly change in fifteen years. Was how much the city of Kent and the residents there, how much tension there was between them and the students yeah. themselves. We, I always felt, and it always frustrated me, um, you know, how the, the I would say that the, the residents there didn't seem to appreciate the, um, the economy that the students yeah. brought to it. They didn't, they resented the fact they were there. They resented how college students behave and, uh, you know, it, not that not that people should go out and have a riot in downtown or anything, but at the same time, it was a very conservative, uh, small, tight knit community, and you know, it, it was like they did not appreciate the amenities that a university brings to your town. So you're having yeah. this like you're, you know, you've got these folks who live on basically in a campus town, right? Um, but they um, are not. It's not a camp- campus town like an Oberlin or a campus town like a, even a Columbus, Ohio, where you've got this kind of you major know, city next to it. Major city, urban, liberal enclaves type thing. There, it sounded to me like the people in the town were, were um, I mean, this is 1970, so it's post the 68 convention. There's, right. you know, the, the idea that the, the yippies are p- protesting all over campuses all over America, and it didn't sound like the town appreciated that very much, and they had a heightened level of anxiety over the fact that there were kids in this particular um, town who they were worried about kind of destroying their neighborhood, and they didn't like what college kids were doing. They didn't like the activism of the late 60s right. and 70s. Right. And, and you know what? couple of different things. Like, you have to remember that this is the universe, the largest university in Northeast Ohio. That You know, Cincinnati has UC right in the middle of the city. Columbus has Ohio State right in right. the middle of the city. Kent is often this small town, and, you know, it's it's quite a bit bigger than Cleveland State is. Um, it's, the lar- it's the third largest university in the mm-hmm. state. And so, 
That's is it a, still the third largest university in the state? I believe it is. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And you know, and, you know, as you saw, unless in the Miami book, has somehow yeah, yeah. surpassed it, you or no. yeah. Huh. But like, I mean, as you saw in the book, you know, it, you know, it, it talked about how the students doubled the population of of the town. Right. So yeah. I mean, they were it was almost one to one, if not, right. you know, them being outnumbered. The other thing was the the rioting that they described downtown reminded me very much of of what. When Kevin and I were there, we, we, we called the it was a it was the annual almost annual townhomes riot, yeah. or almost every other year or whatever it was. And there was this it was not downtown; it was often kind of a kind of a private you know student housing type of area, not controlled by the university, but built by private uh, you know development interests or whatever. And every you know near the end of the semester in May every year. It, it seemed like, you know, somebody's got to throw their couch on the, on the street, <laughs> set it on fire, yeah, and it happened routinely. It did. And then that's what you were getting at, Kevin, it was just that the, 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 the time that this was happening in the country, everything was such much more of a powder keg. Right. I mean, there's there even this paragraph early on where they talk about how they had talked about how it was this terrible Friday night riot, and there had been all this damage, but at the end of the day... Like the local chamber estimated that it only was ten thousand dollars worth of damage to the town, which I'm only is not to diminish the fact that there was ten thousand dollars worth of damage, but in the town's eyes that night, and then over the next couple of days, it was out much more outsized than. My point about yeah. that, about this and the townhomes thing, is that that incident in the book downtown sounds more like drunks to me than political protesting. And I th- yeah. and I think that it was because I you know I talked to the way that the book read it. Yeah. Yes. Because you know I, and I did talk with um you know with people who had been there in two th- yeah. so we were both in, in school uh, at Ken in 2000. And the was, 30th anniversary yeah. and of the shootings. You know I ha- I had the opportunity to talk to uh, multiple people who were there in 1970 and when they dis- and that was the first time I had heard about the you know the riots on Friday night. And everyone just told me that it, you know, it sounded like it was people blowing off steam, and that you know, it, it was just everyone who was out out at the bars. You know, it wasn't anything, you know, overly political. It was not, you know, due to Cambodia, you know, Nixon's decision to go into Cambodia. <clears throat> but I think that it just added fuel to the fire to the whole sense of tension and you know, in the community. Um, if I'm not mistaken, the rally against, uh, you know. Uh, the Cambodia decision had been set on Friday, you know, so that when people would come back on Monday, they could go straight to the rally. But in the day before, you know, in the age before cell phones and mass, you know, you know, true mass communication like we had, you know, if you went home for the weekend, you weren't going to hear about martial law being declared right. or anything. Yeah, that, uh, I I want to I want to get to the communication stuff because I think that was so crucial in all of this. It was it's hard to. We're jumping around a little bit. Um, it's hard to imagine this whole situation happening today, given the way communication works and the way people would have been able to talk photograph. about what was going and photograph what was happening, the way that the the National Guard and the political leaders would have been quickly engaged from a media perspective. But Yeah, you would have had hundreds of cell phone videos of this, uh, it would have been horrifying. And that's why it's unimaginable that this would happen in this day and age. You know, partly because what we know about how to control crowds, right? I mean, you wouldn't send 18, mostly because of this incident, we know not to control crowds this way. You wouldn't send 18, 19, 20, 20, you know, 
however old these National Guard right. men were, they were not experienced in law enforcement, and they're being asked to control a, a situation where you had, you know, hundreds and thousands of people. Um, who are the same age. Who are their same age, you if know, not protesting you know, a war. If not friends and classmates. Yeah, the, the tactical decisions that they made throughout this book um, reinforces exactly that. So let's let's um, we'll keep diving in on the book, but but you mentioned that you were there, you were both there during the thirtieth anniversary. So I imagine for somebody who starts at Kent State today, it would that this history still looms large over it. But you were there during an, a, a major anniversary, so I assumed it loomed large during your your time there. Very much so. Yeah, I mean, I was the editorial page editor of the student newspaper at that time. I don't remember what your job was at that point, but I was well, I was the art director of yeah. of the paper, and. So every year, the, the celebration is, is really a celebration. It's more of a commemoration, yeah, I guess. Yeah. Um, you know, the journalism building at the time was in Taylor Hall, which is right outside where this happened. Sure. Um, and so it loomed large in your daily life. You'd walk past the memorial every day when you're on your way to work at the Stater, Daily Kent Stater. Is and Taylor Hall now where the memorial, like, the they haven't they changed that building? Did I read that right? Right. Taylor Hall is not where the journalism yeah. building is anymore. I, I believe only architecture is there. Yeah. And, and there's, like, a memorial on the first level or something? Well, you, well you, it's yeah. It's right outside of the, the building. Yeah. You have the, the Prentice Hall parking lot, which is where the four students were, were shot and killed. Right. And four of those parking spaces are now taken over by memorial pillars. You have a very long... Uh, wall, memorial wall, that is, uh, it's almost reminiscent of the Vietnam Memorial. Uh -huh. And I think there's, what, one or two more, yeah, you know, markers somewhere. So you well, can't miss it. You're on campus. Yeah. It's, it's in your... Yeah. Well, yeah. It, you know, and what I, I think is kind of ironic is that the, you know, the campus now has become, or at least it was back in, you know, when we were there, uh, sort of a, a shrine to left-wing politics and, um, you know, it, it became, you know, like a mecca for people, for the same type of people that, you know, the book describes in 1970 that the townspeople won out. Um, you, you know, it, it became, you know, like a, you know, a symbol for, for activism. Right. And, uh, you know, the other, one of the controversies that was occurring around the 30th anniversary was, you know, they used to let people park on the spaces where these students had died. And so there was a big controversy and a push by a group called the May 4th Task Force, which um, they wanted basically the parking spaces closed and there to be some kind of memorial to each student on each spot. And so now you have each of those spots marked in the parking lot. And it, it's just kind of a, kind of a, almost a morbid thing. Cause I mean, I remember commemorations uh, after that where people would come up and be like, are, are they buried there? I mean, they look, literally look like graves almost in a way. In the middle of the parking lot. In the middle of yeah. the parking lot. So you have a car on each side and actually all three sides of these of these markers and they're just kind of in the middle of this parking lot. So it's kind of kind of a strange, you know. I'd, almost I'd, haunting. I mean, yeah, that's, that's a little haunting is exactly the yeah. word for it. I don't remember what I, I don't, Remember thinking that was a good idea back in 2000. I, well, I don't and of know. course, you know, I mean, you know, parking was such a premium at that. Time. <laughs> oh God! <laughs> I mean, I mean, I mean, you know, I mean, I'm just, I mean, just to lay it out there, parking was was. So this was controversial on campus. It was, it was. yeah, it Very was so. because you know, I mean, everyone wanted a good parking spot, wow. and you know, you're taking away four prime parking spots, which, you know, I mean, it's. 
I think as Cincinnatians, we can imagine this yeah. controversy easily. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> but, um, you know, the other thing about the commemorations is that they're, they always seem to be dominated by, I, at, at the time I was at Ken, I, I thought they were, you know, they were always, they always brought in these, these political causes that I didn't think particularly related very well. They, they Fair, t- fairly left-wing. Yeah, and, and so they would take up, the, the one in particular I think of is a guy named Omiyo Abu-Jamal, who had, oh, sure. yeah, who had, who was uh, serving a life sentence for killing a Philadelphia police officer, yeah. which he says he was wrongly convicted of. And one year they had... Uh, that was a time, big case back in my, back in the, when I used to volunteer with Amnesty International, and that was a big, that right. was always kind of a big, uh, that and Leonard Peltier, I probably, they probably had Leonard Peltier... Yeah, I mean, one year they had, uh, and at the time he was sentenced to death, uh, later the governor of Pennsylvania would commute that sentence to life in prison, but uh, they, they would say that he's a political prisoner, and, you know, the 30th anniversary, I believe, it, and it might have been the year after, my memory kind of pushes the two together, because one year I was a junior, the next was I, I was a senior. Anyway, they, they played a, a, a tape of a speech from him, and then um, I remember the, the group that organizes as part of the commemoration, the May 4th task force, the one of the speakers got up and, and chastised this police officer in the crowd for carrying a gun. And uh, I remember writing a column kind of about this and, and how, you know, I, I, I would have loved to have seen, you know, just kind of a commemoration of the day and to think about, you know, what had happened without... Four kids, right. ...without politicizing it so much. And... Uh, I think the next, either the next year or the the next day or whatever, they I think they compared me to Trent Lott, which I thought was hilarious. <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah. In a, in I a, mean, I've always thought. Yeah. <laughs> you. Um. All right. So we talked a little bit about the Friday night riot. Um, the next major flashpoint of the weekend was Saturday when they burned the ROTC building. Right. Um, which seemed to me fairly remarkable that they burned a building down and that that didn't lead to an immediate like cessation of activity on the campus. But apparently, you know, if you read the book, it, it, it had happened all over the country on campuses. They either damaged or burned these buildings down. And the thing that's really struck me in the book that I had a lot of my memory of what I used to know about this, you know, about May Fourth had kind of faded until I read the book. And what struck me was interesting about it was that. That nobody, the police, the university, they didn't really try to stop these kids from burning the building down. Well, that yeah. that was totally clear in the book. I mean, the book made it sound like I'm not going to say they wanted a new building, but it was almost like it was prime it was real almost estate. They right? were like, ah, you know, if that building wasn't there, <laughs> I mean, we could yeah, put a great yeah, art. We could put something there. there. Yeah. And it was really it wasn't that great of an art building. I don't remember. Is what that the, what ended up going there? Yeah, that that's that's what's what's there now. See, I don't remember what's there now. That's interesting. Yeah, the, the description so in the book, I mean, I think the, just in terms of big picture on the, on the book, what I liked about this book the most was kind of the f- first half of it, which felt more like the TikTok of what was going on in a, right. f- at the incident. And yeah. he did good interviews, and I felt like, okay, I understand this, and I can see what happened. I don't understand what happened, but I... Um, I learned something about that particular weekend, and then the second half, or maybe the second third, or the the third third of the book, is when he kind of goes into you know some other stuff about conspiracies and how this has lasted and what the the legacy of Kent State Kent State has been. But I thought he was at his strongest when he was just going through piece by piece. What yeah, the, yeah, the actual shootings happen early in the book, um, which I thought was that's interesting. right. I mean, not you know four or five chap- chapters in yeah. Sun- Sunday. 
I feel like Sunday was where you hear more of the you know police back and forth and the kind of build up to what happened right. on on Monday. Well, yeah. What was what was interesting to me um, when I was able to talk to people uh, you know, 15 years ago during the 30th anniversary was you know many of the students, even though there was a curfew, many of the students were still finding a way to to have fun. You know, they were running in and out of shadows, trying to avoid the spotlights from the the helicopters. On and Sunday night. On Sunday night, Saturday night and Sunday night, uh, uh, but especially Sunday night. But they were uh, they were partying with the guard. And, Is that know, right? Yeah, I mean, some of, you know some of the guard members would come to the parties. They would sneak out of their barracks, uh. um, and you know, I mean, everyone everyone going to these parties, whether they're a student or a guard, or in some cases both. I mean, they're all just you know nineteen, twenty, twenty one year olds from Northeast Ohio, and. You know, they really have, you know, a lot of them just really had no beef with each other. You know, they were there because either that's where they were going to school or that's where their job had taken them. And, you know, no one, no one was expecting any kind of ex- escalation the next day. Uh, so, you know, I mean, just from my own recollection, that was, that's always been something that's, like, stood out to me. Yeah. So Saturday, Sunday, and then Monday is the incident, and he kind of goes through this piece by piece. Um, right. The forward movement of the guard, I guess, down, did they come basically down a hill and then up a hill and then kind of down into the parking lot and then back? The way that I remember reading it was... I mean, it, that's, I know our listeners are... It, it's, it's hard to envision. On the, fir- the nice part about this book is, and I found myself going back map. and forth, yeah. there's a map of the school at the beginning, and, he, and they, they show kind of the morning of May the 4th when the National Guard forms at uh, what I guess looks like the westish side of campus and comes towards Taylor Hall. It looks like they come up a hill to where Taylor Hall is, and then the parking lot is down below? Yeah, right. so they, they, they almost go around Taylor Hall. Both sides, right. Yeah. But the one on the right side, if you're facing up the hill towards Taylor Hall, that's the important part. They chased, they chased the demonstrators and drove them up the hill around the right. Into the parking lot. Into the parking lot. And that's where, you know, that's where the guards started to feel threatened. And they, they walked up the hill, um, turned around, in and fired and yeah. fired and it, it was you know they claimed to have been it's funny you know there's such a dispute about this like how close the students were were they throwing bricks and rocks i thought one of the really interesting and and i think they also said bags of feces bags of urine right. you know yeah. i thought one of the interesting points made in the book was you know th- this hill is a grassy hill there's not a lot of stones and rocks laying on it and you know, the National Guard uh, commander claims that they had brought in these foreign rocks or something yeah. with them as if they were planning it all right. along. It just really strains credibility to me. And Don't they, like, go through people's pockets and things? And They, they, they claim like that the victims had, uh, you know... Foreign, yeah. You know, foreign objects or, like, you know, there's, like, dirt in their pockets from where they had a rock or something. And right. You know, it's really kind of puzzling. Anyway... But then they, you know, they, they they did a lot of forensic. They did, I was surprised how much evidence they gathered, and mm-hmm. you know, it was clear that most of these demonstrators were were far, far away, you know, or, or far enough away that that they did not, you know, they did not present any life threatening situation to these guardsmen. 
there were a few people who were kind of known activists, if I remember. He talks about yeah. them yeah. in the book. And they were definitely up front where the protests right. were. One of they, them is this guy named Alan Canfora, who we both have met, and is still to this day a pretty radical guy. You know, he was waving this black flag, and he got shot in the wrist. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so there, there's, there's people like that who were... You know, there were hardcore people, and then there were people that were just walking by and got killed. One of the person, yeah, one the young woman who she was just Sandy Shore. They'd say she took the wrong path to class, basically. Yeah, which is that's. I mean, that was the other thing about the forensics that are described in the book is like there's they find bullets in dorm rooms, they find bullets. They're well, they're so fortunate that more than four yeah. people weren't killed. I mean, they, I, I really enjoyed the, you know, the, the, the section that was talking about the power of the M1 yes, brand. Yes, was, that was unbelievable. It was. And, you know, I mean, it's... H- how it would go through cinder block walls, yeah. basically. And that you're firing almost indiscriminately into a crowd of, of students in a, you know, I mean, there were, you know, if you look at the pictures, I mean, there were hundreds, if not thousands of people there. But... That was a great section because, you know, yeah. you're just so desensitized to violence in this day yeah. and age. You watch on television, people shoot people all the time, and you just don't really appreciate the damage that a bullet does when it hits you. And this thing, this chapter that we're talking about just described it, you know, in a way that really brought it home to you. You know, you know, and, and, you know and that's kind of where, you know, I started thinking about, you know, things today. You know, I mean, you know, you think about the, the Pulse nightclub, and that was just right. one man with, with a rifle. But you know, firing indiscriminately into a crowd of people, I can't even imagine what it must have been like to have a, a line of National Guardsmen firing into a, a crowd of thousands. Right. The other interesting thing about the shooting itself is there's so many different potential explanations as to why they did it. Some people think they were ordered to do it. Other people think they heard, like one of the details was one of the victims uh, talks about how one of the nearby dorms, there would always be doors slamming yes. because of the, the windows were open and the air was rushing through it. And Think about a big metal door right. getting maybe, sucked. Maybe they mistook it for someone shooting at them, um, and, and that's why they fired. Or then there's this mysterious character who had a gun on him that was taking photographs for either the FBI or the local police or both. It's, it's not really clear in the book who he actually is. And then there's a dispute, you know, as they examined his gun, were four bullets filed, fired right. from it or none, you know? And, right. and what, what role does this guy play? And, you know, he doesn't, his name is Terry something. I can't, Norman, I think, Terry yeah. Norman. And it's clear to me that the author tried to interview him because he mentions, he doesn't yeah, And do I interviews. think he says he couldn't get interviewed with him, right? Right. Doesn't he say right. something... And so it's like, well, did that guy fire four shots and, and the others heard it? And then there's this audio tape, this really grainy audio tape that exists at, at the time. Which has come out repeatedly now. Well, like, it, was just, it just came th- out again where, you know, the, uh, I believe the, it was the plane dealer. You could hear the word fire. Yeah, you could hear on. the word fire. Yes. So you could hear someone actually give an order. And maybe. Maybe. Or maybe they're firing at us or, you know. Yeah. But Who knows what's actually being said? Yeah, I mean, it is. It is, and yet, then there are these things where, like, all of the rifles were shipped away and never, you know, been able to track. Without right, there was a section about what happened to a lot of the evidence from the, um, which fueled conspiracy theories still to this day, yeah. including by I imagine some people who were still kind of in and around the Kent State campus. Right. Um, and and I guess this is what is this is what was interesting to me in the book is that 
there have been times like this in in his, in American history where something awful like this has happened, but it's very difficult to go back and say what actually tr triggered the exact event and where and when you're saying how do you prevent it where did you go wrong? It's not it's not just one thing. It was like this. Um, everything conspired against uh, or conspired to make this happen. The fact that there had been this Friday night activity, the weather was, it was the right kind of weather. I mean, it was the right kind of, it was the wrong people who showed up. It was all of this together coupled with the kind of the national atmosphere that existed. Mm -hmm. And it, and like you said at the beginning, it was a bit of a powder keg. And then the slightest little spark, if it's a door slamming, if it's a, somebody yelling fire for whatever reason ends up triggering this, this horrible tragedy. Right. I was really moved by, and I don't think I ever knew this, even when we were at Kent, I was really moved by the aftermath, the minutes after the shooting happened, where the students were down in the commons, and there was a professor there, and I can't, I wish I could remember his yeah, name. Wait, wait, he, uh, Glenn Frank. Glenn Frank. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. He, I'm like, you f I feel like you have to say his name because yeah. he was such an... Yeah, pivotal figure. You yes, know? and and he, you know, he basically and the students are enraged at this point. Just minutes after this happened, and the guard is down there, and they have read the Ohio Riot Act, and they're supposed to disperse, and the students aren't dispersing, and he is just crying. He is begging them to move, otherwise, he's afraid the National Guard will will fire more at them or mm -hmm. or come towards them, and. Eventually they do. They're so moved by you know by him that they decide to follow his instructions, and I I just don't ever recall knowing that. And it was, you realize how much worse it could have been. But it's also amazing that they've just fired into this crowd of students. You know who at the very most had rocks or whatever, and they're still willing. You know there's still a potential for even more violence yeah. after that. Well, you know, and I think that's just you know. I think that leads into you know, the next section of the book, which is you know the aftermath in, in the days and weeks after, where you know it's everyone opining about you know you know um, you know like well, what really struck me was uh, the uh, the Marine barracks. Yeah, you know, they talk about the Marine barracks where Jim Webb, you know, from you well, know, senator from Virginia. senator for, yeah. from Virginia, former, was former, yeah. And you know, like they put up a a, a scorecard that said, you know, uh, it's like, you know, soldiers for right, you know, hippies zero or something like that, you know, and just the you know, you know, people saying, you know, go out there and shoot, you know, shoot a hippie for me, and you know, let's, you know, we should have killed them all, and even people's parents saying that to their kids who were there, right, saying should have shot more of them, they should have shot more of them, and you know, and one of those kids saying, Dad. I could have been one of those who were shot. Right. Um, you know, that, you know, it, yeah, it, it is kind of amazing that, you know, only four people were killed. But it's also more amazing to me that, you know, so many people, f you know, felt that this was such a right action to do. That's right. Um, I mean, we live in a time where yeah. we, Kevin and I both work in the media, so we have our encounters with online commenters and, we, you know, people in the media remark often how horrible people are to each other online. Yeah. Online, when they're, yeah. when they're hiding behind a comment or the, they think yeah. they're hiding yeah. behind. But this is a reminder, the, the reaction afterwards, just how horrible people have always been, you know, yeah. sometimes in reacting to the events like this. And, you know, and it doesn't sound like necessarily they're all outliers, you know, that a lot of people had strong feelings about it, you know, 
in a way that is astounding. What did you think about? There's some there's some description about the failure of both the political and the university leadership at the time, and there was a campaign going on that was, I guess, Rhodes and Rhodes and Taft mm-hmm. at the same time. I guess that was for a Senate seat. Yeah, um, yeah. I had forgotten Taft won. I had forgotten the the primary election between the two of them. They were both Republicans. Was the day after the shootings on Tuesday. Right, and Taft ended up winning barely. Yeah, because Rhodes was Rhodes was running kind of a law and order type of situation. He was trying to capitalize on how tough he was. Was it? Cl- it didn't seem clear to me that 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 this affected the election in a well. They had a whole part in this in the in the book about how the polling had shown Taft was way way ahead, and and then it narrowed. And then it narrowed. The result at the end on that Tuesday was so narrow; it was yeah. several thousand votes, and Rhodes just barely lost. That this that when he, you know, when the mayor of Kent called him and asked for the national guard, and he gave a speech, and you know he called he said. He called them brown shirts and, and yeah. all the horrible rhetoric that the governor had at the time, you know, that that really helped him out in that election. It really helped. It really helped Jim Rhodes. Right. Governor Rhodes, right. yeah. Uh, that, that he, made, he managed to make up, you know, the, the period of time that he, or the, the, you know, the points that he was behind in that, uh, in that election. The university president was... Um, Robert White... I mean, there's a there's a seat there's a. He really seems they, feckless in the whole book. It, it really, also feels ter- he didn't even go yeah. home the fr- like Friday night. He didn't go home. I don't think he got there till Sunday, right? Yeah. Um, well, he, he was in uh, what Iowa? He was in Mason City, Iowa, according to the book. Yeah. And so he flew back, and then he sends these notes after to the parents of the you know these almost like telegrams and there's Still one page very language. Yeah. the language. I mean, completely unsympathetic and. Sorry for your loss and almost passive voice type language. Um, it was clear he just wasn't fit for the leadership a cri- that he in a crisis. To, yeah, I mean, they, in the book they call him the last teacher president of Kent State, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, um, but you know, but I mean, you know, if, if you're the, you know, if you're a, a you know, a, an educator, I mean, are you, are you even capable of, you know, dealing with something of this magnitude where all of a sudden you're you're campus is taken over by martial law and you have armed soldiers walking around you know and yeah I mean you're right I mean he does kind of seem feckless and you know very ineffectual but that was the other problem is it wasn't clear I mean he he gets into this in the book it wasn't clear who was in charge exactly so was it the governor was it the the, whatever the top ranking person was from the National Guard, was it the university president, was it campus police? I mean, there was just not any right. clarity on who was running the show. And even after, it, it, it didn't, I mean, the president didn't even seem to f- know when he could take his campus back or when he right. was back in right. charge of his campus. Yeah, I mean, it, this is a really kind of just the facts type of book, but one conclusion that Means does kind of come to in the book is that the National Guard should have never been called in, that that was just overkill from the from the beginning. But the town was so on edge and so ticked and, off. And that actually, the, yes. And, it, and, and, it all, and, you know, going back to Roads, you know, it was saying that, you know, just that year Roads, was that that year or during his term that he had called out the National Guard 40 times. Right. So. It was just kind of the thing that he did. Right. It, that 
section obviously sat with me. I in my my previous history, I worked in the mayor's office in '01 when Cincinnati has its own had its own rights, and I remember answering the phones in the office because we all answered phones, and there were you know people from the neighborhoods who were saying, "You must call in the National Guard. You have to call in the National Guard. You've got to curb what's going on downtown." And at one point, the mayor called the governor and said. I'm getting a ton of pressure to call in the National Guard. Yeah. And the, the response back from the state of Ohio is very clear. You don't want to do that. Like, you don't need that right now. Right. And they just did not. I mean, the National Guard are, I mean, these are honorable people who go out and they fight for our country. and They do incredible things. But diffusing a riot situation either on a campus or in a, an urban city is not the. They're not trained in that's law not enforcement. The, yeah, exactly. That's not the high, that's not the, the best job for them. Um, and th- and they were actually nervous that it would make things worse uh, because it would yeah. escalate kind of people's response and w- what they would see going on downtown. That seemed to be a real weakness in the infrastructure you know, in, in Kent at that time was the it seemed like the city police force, there weren't very many of them, and then the campus police force refused to come off the campus to help with the situation downtown, and that kind of allowed the whole thing to escalate to where the mayor said, hey, I'm calling. I'm calling the governor and, and asking for this, and that's what ended up happening. And it seemed like Jim Rhodes was ever, you know, just all too happy to oblige mm-hmm. in right. order to look tough. There's a, I mean, you're you are an artist, and there's a cartoon that I'll never forget when Jim Rhodes died, um, and one of the, I can't remember if it was the Post to the Enquirer, but they ran a cartoon, and it said. Uh, it was, it was a great cartoon. Do you remember? And it's Jim exactly Rhodes, and he looks just about. like Jim Rhodes. He's carrying the suitcase, and he's standing at the gates of heaven, St. Peter's Pearly Gates, and St. Peter stands there, and he says, you know, welcome, Governor, but before we let you in, we have four students we need you to meet with. Yeah. Right. Um, I mean, that's a... That's a it's a hard thing it was a Borg. I think it was a Borgman. Um, Probably. And because it, it, was, it was very dark, and... Um, but that's 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 on his that's a stain on his legacy for I mean yeah. there's plenty of those but I mean well and he was one of the you know he was he served four terms which is unbelievable in right. this day and age um, you know he won again after this yeah I mean he 19, was he was in 1970 yeah. or governor up until the 80s or in the 80s uh, I think so like think early 80s Celeste. He, yeah he so he won let's see when did he beat Gilligan he tried to make a third comeback that was not successful in 1986. And I yeah, think so I guess he he must have he must not have run for governor in 1970 because that's when uh, I think that's when Gilligan he was term won the now. first time and then Gilligan was up again in 1974 and that's, and that's when Rhodes came back and beat Gilligan right and he served another two terms then um, which is remarkable yeah it's remarkable that he was able to get elected to public office after that but that was the times right I mean people this was the book even talks about this that. This brought out Nixon's silent majority, who wanted, who had enough of riots in cities and, you know, disobedient students and wanted law and order. And then that's this this kind of really helped Nixon win a reelection in, in '72. Then, in addition to having a an opponent that just was probably way too far to, to the left to, that, to yeah. get a, you know to get elected at that point. So. What did we miss? What other what what else from the book did you enjoy? Was there something that you didn't like about the book? Speaking of Nixon, there's a there's a point in there that I really love, and I remember it being depicted in the movie about Nixon's life that had Anthony Hopkins in. And I was you're which watching, is a, which is an incredible movie, by yeah. the way. Yeah, and you know it's Oliver Stone who directed it, so you're like, well, wait, what happened? And what didn't happen? <laughs> I don't know. And there's this great scene that's both in the book and in the movie where he goes, you know, he's 
he's given this speech, and it's well-received after the shootings, and it's kind of conciliatory, but also, you know, not too far away from his, yeah. from his conservative law and order base. And everybody thinks it was a great speech. And so he can't go to sleep. He's so excited. He's so jazzed up. He, he calls his driver Manolo. Manolo. And they get, in, they get into the motorcade and they go off to the Lincoln Memorial where there's another protest set to happen the next day. And he's, he's on the Lincoln Memorial talking to these college students. And, you know, he tries to engage them in small talk about football because that's what Nixon really, right. you know, he loved football. And they eventually get to talking about the war. And, you know, it, it, it's just kind of this extraordinary moment. Um, where, you know, I mean, the president's up in four o'clock in the morning and the students are probably thinking, did I do too many mushrooms last night? I mean, yeah. the president of the United States is did, in front of me. Was, and, did you see? Was yeah. And I, I just, I kind of love that that happened for whatever reason. I just. I, I, I like I made it in the, in the it, it was in here too. It was in the we book. We talked yeah. about it as well. Oh yeah. So it's I, like a, and that actually, in my memory, I was like. And then don't they go out for. Like even after they left the memorial, he didn't. Nixon didn't want to go home. No, he went to the House of Representatives to show Manolo the he'd never been on the House floor or something. Yeah, and then they went for like soup or breakfast or something yeah. before they went back to the house. Yeah. What about you? Anything we missed? No, I mean, you know, I, I just yeah, the the really the thing that you know, the book really got me thinking about um, was just you know the generation gap that it describes and the culture gap that it describes. Um, and I can't help but think about, you know, the, the generation gap and the culture gap that we have today. And, you know, I mean, I, you know, I, I think it's, I think understanding what's happening now um, is always dependent on understanding what's happened before. Right. So, um, you know, I, you know, it's, it's just, uh, you know, a stark reminder. If you, you know, if anyone does go out and read this book, you know, I mean, I hope that they kind of take that with them. Yeah, it's so. it was difficult to not think about yeah. kind of the times that we're living in now and exactly. protests, yeah. and it's frankly difficult not to think about what's going to happen in th th you know three weeks in Cleveland, Ohio, when right. there's a you yeah. know uh, somebody's nominated for you know, the Republican National Convention is going to be there, and there's all this talk about protests, and here we are back in Northeast Ohio, 45 years later, <laughs> and there's this you know. Boy, did we dodge a bullet, you know, like not getting that convention here. Yeah. <laughs> it could, yes, it could have been. I don't know. How do you feel? I mean, did you really want, did you want that convention here? Oh, yeah. I'm a junkie. Uh, I well, definitely, I, I, I don't care what it is. I, well, I, you get to go up to Cleveland. I am going to Cleveland, yes. Everyone, everyone keeps saying I should bring a flak jacket or something, but I don't know if it'll be that bad. No, I think it'll be. I mean, that's that's the other thing. I mean, there's a, uh, that goes on to the history. It's It's clear that the... The U.S. government learned from this incident in terms of how they, you know, deal with crowds, how they deal with situations mm -hmm. like this. It's it it is hard to imagine this happening again, but I I don't know. Well, yeah. I mean, it was hard for me to imagine this happening again. You know, I, um, I, you know, just having you know talked with some of the people that had been in this that they mentioned in this book, um, and I talked with them I think in 1999 and early 2000. And a lot of those people saying to me that they had a hard time imagining um, anything such as protests like that, you know, ever happening again, or wars, you know, like you know, long protracted wars ever happening again. Right. And of course, you know, within a year of talking with those people, you know, you have nine eleven. Right. So. And then a fifteen-year period of war. Yeah, and so you know, 
I, I, I can't ever, I don't think I can ever truly say that I can't imagine something happening. Um, you know, this could happen again. Uh, and I think that, you know, we should be cognizant, you know, we should always be cognizant of what happened before. Right. You know. Um, I, I guess that's a good place to end. Um, I, I'd recommend this book to anyone. I think it's a, um, I, I don't imagine, though I'd never read anything else, I don't imagine it's the only book that's ever been written about what happened at Kent State. Um, yeah, yeah. But if you want a um, not difficult to read and comprehensive look at how it happened, what happened over the period of time, and then kind of some of the issues that come that followed from it. Um, recommended the book again is 67 Shots by Howard Means. Uh, the subtitle is Kent State and the End of American Innocence. Um, so we will wrap up. Um, thank you for joining us today on the 12th Story. We encourage you to subscribe via your preferred podcast app. Um, we're available on the iTunes Store and on SoundCloud. And if you like listening, tell your friends or tweet to us at Mercantile Library. That's Mercantile L-I-B. Uh, today's podcast was directed and engineered, as always, by Chris Messick. Special thanks to our guests, Chris Wetterick and Kevin Necessary. The Twelfth Story is a production of the Mercantile Library in downtown Cincinnati. Our theme music was created by Doug McDermott. Don't forget to visit us online at www.mercantillibrary.com where you can learn about our library and our upcoming events. Have a great week.